Hello, my name is Will, and you're listening to Exploding Helicopters, the only podcast in the world that celebrates helicopter explosions in film. Now, after The Da Vinci Code inexplicably made a ton of money, Hollywood was always going to try and squeeze a bit more money out of the damn brown cash cow. But having used the big and notoriously nonsensical bestseller, they had no choice but to go back to an even more incomprehensible novel. So on this show, we're looking at 2003's Angels and Demons, which saw Tom Hanks return as everyone's favourite fictional symbologist. To help me unravel this riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma is a long-time friend of the show, Joe Clift. Welcome back, Joe. Hi, Will. Nice to be back. Before we uh, chat about Angels and Demons, have you seen anything interesting lately that you can tell us about? I have. Uh, I'm going to be a bit cheeky and perhaps mention three that I've seen in the past week. It's been quite a busy week, what with Angels and Demons as well. So firstly, one that I'd been meaning to watch for quite a while, which I think was out either last year or the year before, is Calvary, the uh, film with Brendan Gleeson, and I think it's directed by John McDonough, who also did The Guard. Really interesting look at sort of a, a one sort of priest in, in sort of a really remote part of Ireland and it follows his attempts to basically, I suppose, add value to sort of the community through through his role as like the, the religious centre with mixed results. The one that I also saw that's in the cinemas at the minute is The Martian, which I I really enjoyed it. I, I think it's got sort of a mo- mostly positive reviews, but for me, it's just, it's sort of got a, Pretty good script. Ridley Scott's actually off the back of what was an awful Prometheus film. I feel as though this is a return to form for him. And yeah, I, th- I think Matt Damon does a does a pretty good job as well. And lastly, one from I think this must be like the 1970s, Dark Star. It's a really really low budget film, just following a sort of a, a ramshackle bunch in the the outer parts of space with just some bizarre moments in it. There's one particular alien that sort of runs amok on the ship that is effectively just just a beach ball with some crocodile feet attached to it. But it works for some reason. Well, I've seen two of those three films. So I've seen Dark Star, which obviously was John Carpenter's debut film. And yeah, I can certainly agree with you in certain... It was essentially a student film, which I think explains... A lot of the low budget quality and the uh, the way in which a beach ball is pressed into service as a uh, as an alien, but it's got a very good subversive sense of humour, which uh, I think rises above the uh, the sort of budget limitations of the film. I also have seen uh, The Martian, and I didn't like it as much as yourself. I, I certainly don't think it was a bad film, but it was an awful lot of Matt Damon eating potatoes and Matt Damon growing potatoes. Not necessarily what I am looking for from a sort of science fiction movie. I think when you when you have to bear in mind that it's just basically following one person on the planet, there's obviously going to be uh, quite a lot of focus on on one one person's particularly mundane activities. I, I thought it, I thought it was good. Um, Barring the slight miscasting of Sean Bean in the film. I was more appalled, not by the miscasting of Sean Bean, but more by the jumpers that he was wearing <laughs> at various points in those, in those movies. He, this was sort of knitwear that even a, a golfer would turn his nose up at. I can't disagree with you there. Okay, I think it's time we got stuck into Angels and Demons, so let's hear Trailer Man Guy try and explain the plot of this one. 
are under attack from an old enemy. Find Professor Langdon. He exposed one of the greatest cover-ups in human history. Da Vinci. But what terrifying discovery would make the Vatican turn to him? That's Illuminati. The Illuminati were a secret society dedicated to scientific truth. The Catholic Church ordered a brutal massacre to silence them forever. They've come for their revenge. Angels and Demons came out in 2003 and was the follow-up to 2000's Da Vinci Code. The story starts with the Pope lying dead and the four cardinals most likely to succeed him kidnapped by a sinister, shadowy sect called the Illuminati. They are threatening to kill one cardinal each hour, then blow up Vatican City at midnight using an antimatter bomb they've nicked from scientists working on the Hadron Collider. So, with the Catholic Church about to be cremated, the Vatican calls in Tom Hanks, who just happens to be an expert on the Illuminati. He's then teamed up with a sexy scientist, played by uh, Islet Zura, and together they must unpick the Illuminati's dastardly plan and defuse the bomb. Joe, this was a first-time watch for you. What did you make of Angels and Demons? So I should say that I came into it having watched Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code and having read the read the book as well. I think it's it's a mostly awful film. Let's be honest. <laughs> now I I had watched the Da Vinci Code, which which immediately followed this one, and was not a an appalling film. There was at least sort of a I feel as though there was a, a film in it that was at least passable. This particular one, I think, it's no, it's no real criticism to, to Ron Howard. The source material, I feel, is just awful. The plot is incomprehensible. You've done a, a very good job at trying to summarize that and keeping a straight face because it's, it's all over the place. Tom Hanks sort of in it just doesn't seem to, really inspire much just feels as though he's he's dialing in this particular this particular performance the female lead i mean she's she's barely in it for significant uh amounts of the film it feels as though she's actually sort of just been made some sort of ornamental battery changer for the for the bomb <laughs> at the end of at the end of the film which ultimately she doesn't even get to do so it, her role seems completely peripheral to the film and i think I mean, there's obviously sort of a large criticism about um, women actors not getting not getting sort of particularly good roles in, in films. This is a classic example of that, where she's basically the only actress in it, and it's just a it's just a terrible role. I know it says it mostly in the Vatican, so maybe there's a qualification there, but even so, this is this is a really bad film. Well, I just can't disagree with you, I'm afraid, Joe. This is a very terrible film. But I have to confess that I I do find it a somewhat of a guilty pleasure. Oh, uh, if, I, if I see it in the TV schedules, I always have to sort of dip into it for at least sort of 20 minutes or so. Because for the reasons that actually that make it actually such a bad film, the fact that it is so bonkers. So I fully concur with your criticisms of the film but for all of that it is a film that i do enjoy i'm afraid to say I, i'm just amazed to hear that by the end of it i will I'll, I'll be honest i was i was struggling to keep going with it there are very few films that i think i've ever like walked out of or switched off this came pretty close and i have to say it's only because of the fact that the the exploding helicopter comes right towards the end of the film that uh, I ended up keeping going with this. 
Well, let's unpick the plot of this film a little bit more, because really, I think that's the the place that you have to start with this film. As I introed in my uh, description of the film, you've got a murdered pope, you've got a centuries-old sinister conspiracy and antimatter bomb. You know, Joe, you know, what did you make of all of the different story elements that were presented here? It was just basically all over the place. Um, and contrary to, I think, what you said earlier, not in a fun way. I'm not sure if you've ever been on like one of those sort of work treasure hunts that you're forced to go on, um, normally in the city, where you're basically forced to go around like the city, not really particularly enjoying your experience of it. Kind of felt a bit like that, only with uh, the bloody corpse of a cardinal at the end of uh, each clue. <laughs> the plot just felt really sort of at times like completely simplistic uh, you have all this sort of convoluted effort to take tom hanks to a particular church and whereas in the da vinci code you kind of felt as though dan brown had had like sort of cryptic crossword aspect to, to the clues in terms of where to go next in angels and demons it's kind of a basically oh look that statue's pointing over there that way we should go there next well, you hardly need a professor of symbology to determine which way a statue is pointing, do you? So, I, I yeah, guess... he does have to. He does have to on a couple of occasions just to ask like a random police officer, like, "What way? What way is that pointing? Is, is that east or west?" And you've got like one of the officers that are going, "Yeah, it's it's west, I think." And they, he just takes it as gospel and just runs with it. You'd probably you'd probably double check that sort of detail. I will concede that this film has one of the worst openings I've probably ever seen in a movie. It has to establish the antimatter bomb plot. So we we see this bomb being stolen from the uh, inside of the Swiss mountain where wherever the Hadron Collider is actually based. And we then see the sort of ceremonies going on in the Vatican City to, to mark the, the death of the Pope. And... It must be a good sort of 10 or 15 minutes into the film. You're just wondering, how on earth are these two <laughs> things going to... Are they ever going to come together at any point? And yet, somehow, somehow they found a way of doing it. It's a crazy sort of start to a film. You you really have to wonder about the, uh, the security as well at, at CERN for guarding this sort of, like, potentially, potentially devastating antimatter. There's very little security checks at the field to actually get through the various bits of the bits of the route between ground level and this antimatter. Apart from seemingly just removing somebody's eye and just uh, just using that as a way of way of getting through the security checks. And I also thought one of the most unexplained aspects of the introduction was quite why there was a priest hanging around. Why was there a priest there? It's just ridiculous. I oh, That's not to say that you can't be a man of religion and a man of science as well. But to have like a, a, a Catholic priest at the bottom of this, uh, just right next to the antimatter, just felt ridiculous. And in terms of the plot, which essentially is this group, the Illuminati, trying to get revenge on, on the church, I couldn't help but be struck by its complex nature. And, and if they were a Bond villain, they would probably reject this revenge plot as being sort of too elaborate and too complicated. But I feel Dan Brown's effectively just looked at sort of, oh, what's the, what's the big scary thing at the minute that, um, 
everybody everybody really thinks is is an attack on on the religious world. Ah, yeah, the the Large Hadron Collider that's trying to find the God Particle. We'll just throw that in, and everybody will accept it. Why wouldn't you uh, want to basically destroy the the Catholic Church with a great big antimatter explosion? Uh, created from the device that's given you the God Particle. Well, I think you hit the nail on the head there. I I think it's just a a shameless attempt to crowbar in the God Particle, because what would be better to destroy the Catholic Church with than something that has been uh, colloquially dubbed the God Particle? But for people who were actually able to follow the plot of this film, it essentially sort of centres on a conflict between science and religion. And as we learn in the movie, the Illuminati are sort of seeking revenge for their persecution by the church for pursuing scientific knowledge. But the movie seems, though, to be at great pains to suggest that both these sides can live together in peaceful coexistence. Was this something that you picked up on as well, Joe? How could you not pick up on it? It's, it's <laughs> basically thrown straight into your eyeballs. It's not particularly subtle at any stage of the way. We've got sort of a great big speech by Ewan McGregor in the film, which is, is essentially a, a science doesn't have all the answers kind of speech. You see at various points of the, the footage in the Vatican, people like protesting against stem cell research. Sort of with with uh, I think there was one particular bit of dialogue which is you're condemning people to die. Man is not God, and uh, it doesn't feel remotely subtle. And it's I mean I mean this this film doesn't do it particularly well whatsoever. Yes, and it feels as if there is a certain element of trying to not offend the Catholic Church because obviously sort of Da Vinci Code came in for a lot of flack when it was released and was actually banned in many countries because of the way in which it was perceived as an attack on the Catholic Church and this does seem to be at great pains to present the church in a more flattering way. Which is sort of alluded to as well, not in any way subtly I feel, in the in some of the dialogue. So I, I can't remember if it's Stellan Skarsgård's character or, or somebody else in the film. But effectively, when they meet Tom Hanks's character, Professor Langdon, they essentially say, yeah, we didn't really like what you did with that last case of yours, but we're going to allow you into the Vatican inner sanctum anyway. Very much as a, we didn't really like the Da Vinci Code, so we hope that you're going to be portraying us a bit better in the, in this particular one. Please. But there was a slightly curious aspect to those kind of elements which sort of presented themselves as trying to sort of pacify uh, people of the sort of Catholic persuasion. Because McGregor's sort of big speech where he, as you were saying, where he says that science doesn't have all of the answers and there's still a role for religion within society. But then obviously McGregor, uh, and spoiler alert, is revealed to be the great villain of the piece here. So presumably you know, that makes you then reflect on that speech to sort of think, well, how sincere was that? Because, you know, he's the villain of the piece. He's just trying to get himself elected Pope and take over the church from within. And, you know, you have to then wonder how much credence can we give to the authenticity of his words at that moment. I think in that particular moment, I'm gonna, I'm gonna defend the, 
oh, I'm going to defend the writers on this particular <laughs> one. Didn't, didn't think I'd be saying that. Obviously, his his main gripe with the church is that they're not doing enough to actually fight for the church and fight against the criticisms of it, fight against the, the threats that are perceived from science. So his big ambition is to basically have this convoluted way of getting into that role uh, so that he can take uh, take the, the church forward into into a golden age. Well, let's talk about the writing and the writers of this film, because the script really is something. And I probably have encountered few films which have as much volume of story and as much volume of dialogue as this film. I think that obviously Ron Howard is is hampered a little bit, I think, by the source material for the film. But there's so much that's basically crammed into every every scene. There's like a, a ton of scenes where Tom Hanks is having to deliver ridiculous sort of amounts of information whilst on the move. It kind of felt like a a bad episode of The West Wing where they don't actually sort of at any stage stand still in the room, but uh, <laughs> just just continue to do one big loop round the White House delivering dialogue. <laughs> Well, I was struck by the fact that just never has so much dialogue been expended to so little effect in a, in a movie before. It feels as if you're just, it's just a barrage of exposition in this film. You know, nobody can say anything without having to then explain what they're saying. So, and it's always, you know, because of the nature of the film, they're always, they, they mention something and then, they're always talking about some reference to some 17th century scholar or scroll and uh, how it should be interpreted. And you just not a lot, not much of it actually is really adding to the experience of the of the film or really advancing the plot. But we are bombarded with it. Nevertheless, when you're faced with so much stuff that you're having to pay attention to, I just got bored by it. There's very little that can really sort of hold your attention when you're just absolutely bombarded with what feels as though it's it's fairly useless information. I don't think in any way as well that the that there's any subtlety to some of the some of the perceived twists in the film. We have this ridiculous backstory if you like of Ewan McGregor's character where he talks about how how this uh how this Irishman or somebody trying to do an Irish accent ends up at the right hand of uh, of the Pope. And it sort of goes back to goes back to sort of some sort of backstory I think from Belfast where he ends up running helicopter uh, rides, uh, I think for the army or something like that. And it's like, oh, I wonder I wonder if that bit of information might come in useful for a key scene later on in the in the film. Well, it's his backstory is incredibly convoluted because I, if I remember it correctly, he is orphaned by a bomb in Northern Ireland during the Troubles. Don't know which U- side. UVF bomb, I think. A UV- well, he yeah, he's orphaned by a UVF bomb. He's then adopted by a Catholic priest, which, uh, in the light of uh, recent scandals in the Catholic Church, is perhaps not a backstory you would give a character now, unless you were doing a very different sort of film. No he, comment. <laughs> he's adopted by a Catholic priest. Then, for reasons unknown, or kind of brushed, uh, they just sort of said, oh, I was a rebel. So he sort of joined, or oh, rebel, or he was told to by the priest. It's all a bit murky and unclear. He then joins... 
the army and flies helicopters for them. I mean, it just <laughs> you just think, do we really need all of this in order to just establish the fact that you and McGregor... You can fly a helicopter. Yeah. I mean, surely it, that could have been done in some other fashion, which didn't involve Ewan McGregor having to have a very dodgy Irish accent and this whole sort of convoluted, orphaned, army-joining, helicopter pilot business. It was all, yeah, just far too much. Seemingly people looking for the most complex solution when a very simple one would do. What did you think to Stellan Skarsgård's character, out of interest? I don't know what to think of Stellan Skarsgård's character. I think he sometimes takes these jobs in films purely to kind of get his face in a big Hollywood movie so that uh, he can presumably sort of pay off another chunk of his mortgage because he's, he's, <laughs> he's been in a few random sort of Hollywood films which, you know, because his European fare that he makes is very well regarded but then he sort of often sort of turns up in character pieces in these pieces of, of Drek, in often in very small minor roles and you just think what on earth are you, are you doing in here so i i uh, was just sort of attributed his presence to being a sort of mortgage movie i don't know if you saw another reason for him being there i completely agree that he he ends up sort of in these these roles to get a bit a bit sort of a bit more of a profile i suspect but his character must be probably one of the only people around that seems to be unaware of antimatter or the concept of antimatter. <laughs> he sort of puts himself uh, forward as this, uh, ah, I'm familiar with all types of explosive devices, but what is this antimatter that you speak of? What is this? Well, it does seem to be quite a bit of manipulation of characters sort of intelligence or mindset in order to be sort of convenient to the plot because I agree with you just as Stellan Skarsgård is, is sort of ignorant of antimatter you then have Eilat Zura who's in this role as sort of Tom Hanks's sidekick who for, for no explainable reason you know she's there because she's a, an, a, a scientist and an expert in antimatter but then it sort of turns out that she's an expert in Latin, in church history, and also later in, in, in pharmacology. And, you know, it's just purely for the convenience of the plot that that character has those extra strings to her bow. So I, I guess it doesn't uh, really surprise me that uh, Stellan Skarsgård is uh, sort of, in, the, in that aspect, you know, just painted as a, as, a, as a sort of ignorant character just for the convenience of a, of a, of a particular scene. But we started talking about some of the actors in this film, and I wondered what you thought of Tom Hanks here, because he's playing a professor of symbology, and it's not often we really get to see academics as action heroes. And so, yeah, just wondered what you sort of thought of his role here, and and the fact that we do get a you know a brain box in the sort of lead role here. Whilst they said that he was dialing the the role in in terms of his performance, he's not the worst thing in this, and probably. Grudgingly, he's probably one of the one of the more adequate uh, appearers in in this film. He's obviously got a good back catalogue, and I think any any criticisms that can be made about Tom Hanks in this film are largely down to what he's had to work with, which which frankly is not a lot. He's playing a role that I mean, it's he's obviously sort of uh, less of an action hero academic than say uh, Harrison Ford, Cynthia Jones. I'd probably put him slightly above, say, Nicolas Cage's national treasure character in terms of believability. He's not made out as being in any way somebody that could overpower another person. 
which is why basically when when anything happens that puts him in peril, he effectively hides a bit. <laughs> He does like to uh, take cover at uh, at most uh, opportune moments, and uh... which I think is is realistic. I mean, there aren't that many academics I know that would necessarily, at the sign of danger, just just throw themselves in in, the, in a Harrison Ford esque way with a with a nice hat. That's true, and I feel that Tom Hanks earns his salary in this film because he has to deliver volumes of dialogue. With a, with a story that is absolutely insane and he does it with a straight face and he gives this film a certain weight and gravitas that another actor I think would not be able to to do and I think that he grounds the film as much as anyone can in a way which uh, you know helps make this film a, a lot more watchable than it might otherwise be with uh, a different actor in the in the lead role and uh you know you bet you do i mean it, i did think about his character and and what he asked what he's asked to do in this film it's a bit sort of like a i don't know it reminded me a bit like he's trapped inside the crystal maze or something he's just sort of running around solving puzzles but uh they uh, they've already made two films in this series and ron howard and tom hanks are getting back together to make a third because inferno is scheduled to come out next year um, I uh, can I gauge your level of excitement for this project? I've I've got no burning desire to go and see this film. <laughs> okay, thanks, Joe. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll be talking about the exploding helicopter action in Angels and Demons. You are about to witness history in the making. <laughs> Hi there, this is Todd from Forgotten Films, and if you spend all your time watching new releases, then you need to broaden your movie horizons. And a great way to do that is by joining me for the Forgotten Filmcast. We don't talk about the new releases, we don't even talk about the classics. We talk about the movies that time forgot. On each episode, I'm joined by another film blogger to discuss a film that may or may not be worth rediscovering. So look for the Forgotten Filmcast on iTunes, Podomatic, and wherever you find great podcasts. We're back, and now we're looking at the chopper fireball action. The key scene is tied into the antimatter bomb plot. Our heroes finally locate the bomb, but with only minutes left before it explodes, there's no time to evacuate people to safety. So, Pope Ewan does what any good pontiff would do. He grabs the bomb and dashes for a waiting helicopter. Taking the controls himself, he pilots the whirlybird up into the sky, where he intends to sacrifice himself in a spectacular explosion. The chopper disappears through some clouds, whereupon it blows up, and alas, Ewan McGregor is no more. Or is he? Joe, what were your thoughts on the exploding helicopter action? It's a perfect end to a ridiculous film. I think this <laughs> this just almost... Almost that description, Will, sums up the madness of <laughs> this film in one scene. You've got sort of a what, what feels like a caretaker pope, uh, that basically, for, for no no seeming reason, has just taken a massive risk in just like lifting lifting up this antimatter bomb as though it was a football and running with it uh, straight into a helicopter. Could have gone off there in his hands. Didn't care. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna pick it up and head straight to the helicopter. And then he just soars soars up to the heavens. And you you sort of feel as though this is going back to what we said earlier, just 
another way of trying to really get some sort of religious imagery ridiculously sort of thrust into your face and that there's somebody doing doing this sort of what feels like a supreme sacrifice being raised up to the heavens and it's great to see in the in the following scene that actually that was a load of rubbish Yes, because we then see that uh, Ewan McGregor, you know, hasn't sacrificed himself for uh, the whole of Vatican City because he's conveniently found a parachute which allows him to float down safely to Earth, having everyone feared that he was dead, having seen the sort of the skies lit up with this chopper fireball, and then we are treated to the sight of a most unlikely escape as, uh, as you say, the caretaker Pope slowly drifts down to Earth on a parachute that he's presumably found time between piloting this bomb up to a sort of safe altitude to sort of scrabble around in the back of a helicopter. Well, absolutely. I mean, he's made he's made a number of number of calculations to make sure that he can actually has has the amount of time to. To obviously, presumably, skydive for a first bit of it, and uh, and then perfectly manoeuvre himself back into the Vatican as well. For a man that hates science, he's he's done a lot of scientific calculations to get back to the ground. And I didn't think that parachutes came as standard issue in helicopters. I I profess to no great knowledge of. Uh helicopter aviation but certainly i've never seen it in any film or tv program or spoken about by anybody in uh, any previous circumstance i can't say i've seen any exploding helicopter films previously where i mean you've you've had people maybe falling out of a helicopter but never with a parachute that's um inventive well we yeah we have seen escapes from helicopters where people have jumped from them prior to their explosion there was a there was actually a film in the same year as angels of demons called 12 rounds where a wrestler turned actor john senna escapes from an exploding helicopter by jumping from it into a swimming pool that is on the roof of a nearby skyscraper this does remain a unique cinematic experience as the only escape via parachute from a exploding helicopter although actually tell a lie tell a lie black dynamite does feature somebody escaping from a helicopter via a parachute although when they jump from the helicopter they don't know that it's going to explode although, <laughs> it, although it does explode within moments of them jumping from the helicopter so i don't know i don't know if we should really be i i, I feel there is a distinction there it's not it's not a classic I think it's not a classic vehicle to actually like parachute from via choice, mainly because of the danger of like opening the parachute and then getting sliced to bits, and then you've just got a very unexpected skydive. <laughs> Indeed, and one that isn't going to uh, end terribly well for yourself. But what did you actually sort of make of the actual uh, explosion here? There's a lot of colour to it, obviously. I'm assuming that this is the first exploding helicopter that has been exploded by a, an antimatter device. And I think Ron Howard's had a bit of fun there in terms of just trying to make it as, as colourful as possible. You really don't actually see any of the any of the helicopter itself. I mean, it's it's completely submerged by clouds by the time you actually see the explosion. 
Yes, I mean, Ron Howard, you do see the helicopter explode, but only really briefly. And unfortunately, Ron Howard kind of spends more of the time on sort of showing the sort of howling winds and the impact of those on people in kind of on the ground of the explosion of the antimatter device. So we see sort of people being scattered about uh, St. Mark's Square, is it? So I'm not doing that. That's, that's correct. You know your Vatican. And uh, we see people being scattered around that, and do, do there are some sort of, sort of picturesque sort of the night sky is is lit up in a picturesque way, but uh, that it feels very much that, that is more down to the antimatter bomb and 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 that you know less the helicopter. So I was I was a bit sad to see the sort of the explosion of the helicopter sort of relegated in that way. So a bad film and a bad exploding helicopter. Although, well, I have to say I enjoyed the exploding helicopter scene just for the sheer lunacy of the circumstances which lead to its explosion. And if those weren't mental enough, we then have uh, Ewan McGregor's escape from the vehicle as well. So I, I feel, you know, that was the real sort of the cherry on the cake of, the, of that particular scene. There was quite a slow build-up to it as well, I would say. For a film that effectively sort of uh, makes smoke coming up the, the chimney at the Vatican, some sort of action sequence, there was surprisingly... <laughs> It was surprisingly slow-paced and drawn out, uh, this helicopter explosion set piece. I do want to mention for trivia fans that the uh, the helicopter that we see blown up here is a Bell 222, which is the same helicopter which was made famous in the TV series Airwolf. That's the most interesting thing I think you can take from the film, and I've never heard of that helicopter or that TV show. Well, I think the most interesting thing that I took from this film was actually how much uh, Latin or Italian I know, because there were various signs in this movie, and I thought even I can understand them. So uh, we see Tom Hanks going to the Vatican Bank, which... uh, is uh, had a big sign on it saying Banco Vaticano, and even... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> he, he also later in the film goes to, I believe, the the Archivio, which I believe is the Vatican Archive. And yet somehow, somehow Tom Hanks needed somebody, somebody who had actually read Latin to to direct him to those sort of things. Well, I think that just about wraps things up for this show. Joe, thanks for joining me once again. Thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed listening to the show. Don't forget to check out the Exploding Helicopter website. Alternatively, you can keep up with us on Facebook, Twitter and Tumblr. We'll be back soon, but until then, keep watching the skies for those exploding helicopters. <laughs> that was almost as good as the uh, the real thing. This podcast is a proud member of the Lamb Podcasting Network. Find the network at largeassmovieblogs.com.